Our guest comes to us today fresh off of an appearance at the Twin Cities Book Festival and the news that the slowdown won the Signal Award for Best Daily Podcast of 2023. Congratulations. Thank you. It's a big deal. When Rita Dove came to Talking Volumes years ago, we sat down in the green room for a few minutes before going on stage, and Rita could hear the rustle of the audience, and we could feel that wonderful anticipation, which is always a great moment. And she said something like, that's why I think of poetry like a tuning fork. We all end up vibrating together. And I, I think of that all the time when I can feel the energy coming off the audience at Talking Volumes. I love that. I've never forgotten it. I can hear that kind of energy and power of Major Jackson, a poetic tuning fork in his books and his podcast. His love for this art form is pure and it's physical, and it's mighty. He has said of writing a poem, I found the writing of a poem is a kind of plunging, a willful dive below the surface of who I am, that field of mind, feeling, and memories. His new book is titled Razzle Dazzle. He teaches writing at Vanderbilt University in Nashville. And let's have another round of applause. Oh, thank for you. Happy to be here. Um, we are meeting on a Sunday afternoon, and I have been thinking about this wonderful church service that I went to a few weeks ago, when the pastor slipped a poem by Nikki Giovanni mm. into the sermon. I know. You could see people in the congregation just wake up, like, what, <laughs> what, what was that? The poem was quilts. Mm. Uh, it occurred to me that, A, more Sunday sermons ought to include poetry, yes, but I'd also like to hear a little bit about how your faith tradition as a child planted some seeds that we might still, we might still uncover mm. in your work today. Lovely question. What an honor, first of all, to be here today. And what a great pleasure to talk to you, Carrie. You too. Well, definitely uh, Philadelphia Baptist Pentecostal tradition was so full of wonderful theatrics, is what some of us call it. All right. Um, granted, a sacred theatrics, but one that instilled a consciousness of the power of language, um, the music of the pastor and delivering their sermon entered into the body, and we all felt it, particularly as um, emotions arose, arose around um, uh, uh, the great biblical stories. Uh, speaking of which, that's, that was home of some of my first stories. And I truly believe um, one of my great inheritances is uh, a seed of, of song and a seed of story that from all those Sundays. And in my case, with my grandmother, uh, uh, midweek Wednesday revival as well, uh, until you get of a certain age and you can say, no, grandma, I'm, I'm not, I'm <laughs> not going to church. to be to say no to grandma? You know, I had this conversation with um, my 
uh, mentor, the poet Sonia Sanchez. And she believes that 12 years old is when young boys start to decide whether or not they're going to make faith an ongoing, at least the, the ritual of going to church ongoing. They may return. That's a possibility because we reach moments in our lives where um, the world is too much with us, as um, William Wordsworth said it, and you, you, you need your guardrails, you need your, your handles. I love the idea, though, that that may be the first place that you really heard the full integration of story and song, mm-hmm. that that sense of rhythm and musicality exists today in your work. Mm. Do I have that right? I, I appreciate that observation. I might even be a little too, uh, some might argue that I might lean too much on that uh, music. But if I if I cannot hear the music in a poem, I can't feel the message. I think they go one in, one in the same. Um, uh, so much of my work uses repetition and uses uh, what we understand as the elements of poetry that is going to, as I've written about before, that is going to create a sound. Mm. And that sound is, uh, as to use your word, physical. It's um, uh, It helps a vision be embodied. Uh, some, of, some of my most favorite poems that I remember is because, not be necessarily because what they said, mm. but because of the music that is under, that is running underneath like a stream. And I think when I think back to um, myself as a, as, a, as a young boy, that music was uh, uh, sacred as much as it was secular in, in the streets. I mean, my generation was the generation that wanted to be what I like to call in the parlance back then a dope MC. And so, you know, you, to be a rapper was to get close to language and to, to stretch out words and, and make them do more than just say something, but to perform. Okay, two questions about what you've just said. Um, who dares to say that your poetry is too musical? <laughs> Who goes there? I mean, is, that, is that a true, uh, you know, critique? Well, I, I, it wasn't directly. It was um, a, a poet friend who I deeply admire, and someone <laughs> when they say something, you, you must have those friends. Like they say something, <laughs> you're like, maybe they're onto something there, you know. But in speaking about someone else's work. She said, well, you know, repetition can be a little too simplistic and there's no, not much there there and, and it's all performative oh. and there's not substance behind it. And I can, I can understand that as a risk of, of poetry. It's like the person who, for example, to use another art form, who overacts or someone who's a painter putting too much of splash of color in a, on a canvas. And so with any art form, there's a risk. But I applied it to my, you know, it also was like, well, do I have too much <laughs> Right. Yeah. Does she really mean me here? No, too? right, exactly. Right. Right. But, uh, but no one said it directly. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to ask you about is, is that sense of performance. I mean, you saw that as a 
as a child in your mm-hmm. church. I'm sure you've seen that with other art forms. How much is too much? Sometimes that's the way to reach people who are being introduced for the first time to yeah, an art form, isn't that's it? That's right. That's true. You know, I think it's too much if it if it comes off as being inauthentic. And here's an example. I won't mention this family member because I they're they're still around, but um as a contrast, so there's a funeral. And this family member comes in and they're a little late. And so everyone's sat, but they come and they run up to the, to the <laughs> casket. Oh, mama, mama, you know. And it's like, okay, you just made this about you yeah. and not about the collective mourning. And I'm looking over at my grandfather who is in his suit, his tie, and there's not a stoicism. You can see the pain and it's right at the edge. He's holding it in. I felt his pain more than, and his mm. grief more than this other relative who kind of. And so I, I'm not, I'm not putting them opposite one another. Um, I'm just saying there is a kind of performance that can happen where the performance overpowers the actual kind of emotion that wants to go through. T.S. Eliot in his now famous essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent, urges uh, poets to sublimate their personality. And if you hear T.S. Eliot read, you know he really worked at it. Let us go then, (laughs) you and I, like the evening spread out against the sky. (laughs) No, you know... You know, no kind of flourish on the words or leaning into the words. Uh, that's the other extreme. But I think if someone is inside the poem with authentic feelings, you know that it's like form and function coming together. Mm. Do you think Eliot meant that in the performance of the poem or also in the writing? Both, that? I think. I also in both. the writing of the poem? Yeah. He, this, to it's, sublimate it's, it's your... Ver- your personality. And, and also part of his argument was also that there's a larger conversation, um, a tradition of writing, these big questions, and it is to the collective's good to push down the ego. And what I kind of argued in an essay on this uh, very, in response was, you know, some people are already having to do that just by living, to suppress themselves. Mm-hmm. It's imperative in a way for some of us to be heard and seen in a room. And I think poetry allows us to do that, which is why I think spoken word and performance poetry was so powerful when it emerged in the 90s, you suddenly had these marginalized groups who were speaking their truths. Yeah. What do you do when you see your ego turn up on the page? Whoa. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, I am... I love this word that I learned some years ago, solipsism. Mm. which pretty much means navel-gazing. And if I find myself in a poem 
too absorbed in my own kind of like head, heart space. I try to reach out to the reader. In fact, one of the poems that I'll read today points to this phenomenon is that it, I, I want the, even as the work is emerging out of personal experience, I want to create a corridor of meaning for a potential reader or someone listening to see themselves or to connect somehow. And sometimes it's going to be in the performance itself. They may not have had the same experience, but the emotion and feeling that's coming off the page or in the reading, they can go, oh, I I understand the necessity of this poem in our lives today. Yeah. I'm not sure you really answered the question. I knew you were going to say that. Right. I knew you were going to say that. When I reach out to the reader or the world, I'm looking for some illusion, something that we share. Okay. That I can anchor us both in. Illusion, not illusion? Not, that's right. Illusion. Something that is kind of, it might be biblical. Mm. It might be um, coming from popular culture. That's a way that I know that you're going to connect to the poem and not just to me being absorbed in my own particular emotion or outlook. Uh, Maybe we could hear that poem. Sure. We could talk about how that works. Great. This is the first poem of uh, Razzle Dazzle. And as I've been uh, introducing it, it's almost like um, when a couple recommits to their relationship. This is my me doing my vows to poetry and art again. Let me begin again. Let me begin again as a quiet thought in the shape of a shell, slowly examined by a brown child on a beach at dawn, straining to see their future. Let me begin this time knowing the drumming in my dreams is me inheriting the earth, is morning lighting up the rivers. Let me burn my vanities, old music in the pines, snifters of scotch, a day moon like a signature of night. This time, let me circle the island of my fears only once, then live like a raging waterfall and grow a magnificent mustache. Let me not ever be the birdcage or the serrated blade or the empty season. Dear glacier, dear sea of stars, dear leopards disintegrating at the outer limits of our greed, soon we will encounter you only in motivational tweets. Reader, I should have married you sooner. This time, let me not sleep like the prophet who believes he's seen infinity. Let me run at breakneck speeds toward sceneries of doubt. I have no more dress rehearsals to attend. Look closer. I am licking my lips. So can you describe then whether in conceiving the poem and how how long does it take to pull something incredible like that together? Oh, that's right. Um, drafting probably a week. Okay. And, um, and then my process is to put the poem away, to not 
be so eager to give myself some distance because I don't know if there's poets in the room, but we love our first drafts. They're the best thing in the whole world. They're better than everything we've written. And I try to get not a, not a temp not just a temporal uh, distance, but also an emotional distance, so that I can come back to the poem fresh. And that revision state allows me to be as present and inventive in the redrafting than when I first wrote the poem. So I would say, truly, by the time it hits the book, it's probably gone through maybe 30 to 40 drafts. Okay. So you've put the poem away, you've come back to it, and you have that experience of um, spotting the ego on the page. Yes. Maybe a little touch of that <laughs> solipsism that we were talking about earlier. And so you are reaching more for those allusions to the reader. Where does that turn up in that poem? Here, I would say our conversations around the environment. Yeah. I would say also um, not wanting to be someone who has all the answers. Um, I think on occasions, um, poets can settle into that, and some of them settle into it quite well. But if you settle into it, then there's no more questions. And so in a way, I'm positioning myself as someone who's going to be attentive to the world around them and not just to the events that happened to me or even my past, which was my subject matter, Mm. uh, those events in my life. But to kind of turn the gaze outward rather than uh, uh, inward. I'm thinking about children. I'm thinking about what they will inherit uh, for their future. I'm not thinking about my own future. I'm at a, I call this one of my midlife poems, um, where we start becoming a little self conscious about how we are leaving the planet and creating um, a sustainable world. So I think all of those themes are. Uh, in there. And then I say, reader, I should have married you (laughs) rather than myself. (laughs) I I think it's interesting that you said, um, as somebody who does not have all the answers, because, you know, I think there's a brand of poetry that comes off sounding, it's settled, Mm -hmm. and I've found the answer. Mm -hmm. And this is what you should understand Mm -hmm. about that. And you are leaning deliberately away from that. I'm trying to. Um, I talk about poetry as a mode of inquiry rather than a place I go to say something that I know already. But why? Well, mainly because if, you know, it's like you read a Hallmark card and you know the sentiment and you close it and you put it away. There's no, I think that, I think part of what poetry does is frame the mystery and those sceneries of doubt, um, which feels more human rather than coming with the answer. Now, let me say, I love those poets too. I mean, there are certain truths um, that poems have articulated that I live by. And thank God those poets wrote it. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, Louise Glick, who just passed away, right. our most recent Nobel laureate, has um, 
an essay titled Against Sincerity, in which she quotes V.S. Nepal, who says, the ideal creation um, is indistinguishable from truth. And I think that is true. There's work that has an inevitable quality about it. It's like a tree that grows out of the earth. It's there. Uh, it's organic. And then there's some where it's kind of false or pretend revelations. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes behind that, um, a spirit of self-aggrandizement. And I want to try and avoid that as much as possible. I, I really like this phrase you used, sceneries of doubt. Mm -hmm. what, what does that... I think I have an interpretation of that, but what's yeah. yours? Mine is... Um, comes from the English poet John Keats in a letter in which he says um, to his brother, thinking about people who don't, who struggle to get poetry. And he advocates for um, that we should learn to live in our doubts and uncertainties. And I love that idea. Mm -hmm. It feels very Buddhist to me. Um, but, but going to poetry for answers um, sometimes it may, it may not be as satisfying and gratifying. But it, if poetry can, you know, someone says, you know, Major, I didn't get that poem. That's great. You know, it's just like, I didn't get it. But the experience of it, and I would say, I would argue that we mostly live in doubt and Absolutely. uncertainty rather than in these places of revelations. And can you imagine living with someone who's just walking around all the time spouting out truth? Don't, you know, it just. Don't we all know people like that? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I think we're a culture that really pushes us towards certainty. Yeah. I think we, that's what social media does, right. they're big pronouncements. I think. People turn to certain leaders for that kind of this is how it is and this is how we'll think. I think it's a lot more uncomfortable to live in uncertainty and doubt. I mean, you know, in the best kind of congregation or community, mm. you're wrestling with mm -hmm. a lot of that doubt and uncertainty and those mm -hmm. questions, but it feels hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's comforting, it's reassuring. Um, to have those answers. For me personally, and this is at the core of my creative practice, there's just a level of restlessness that I have. And it, it's not born out of any kind of critical mindset, although the humanities teaches us to be, to kind of, um, uh, to go for well-argued answers. Uh, uh, to to think about evidence and the role uh -huh. of evidence in our lives, but personally, I have a deep abiding fear of being inauthentic, and I write poetry because it puts at center the practice of a making. And B, being vigilant to language that would reduce me to a inauthentic person or cookie-cutter existence. Um, and that, that vigilance uh, just makes me a little bit more 
kind of assured, I will use that word, being writing poetry, being close to language, it makes me assured that I'm not being manipulated by someone else's unexamined ideologies and beliefs, politicians particularly. <laughs> Do you, I'm curious, though, as to whether that vigilance also puts up, you know, barriers or mm. creates a voice that where you might be, I don't know, looser or allow yourself to walk down a path that maybe that vigilance, you know, kind of sends up alarms to right. don't go this way. Right. I, I feel as though I've had to grow into my own moral and ethical system. And that, now, granted, I grew up in a church. I inherited a lot of beliefs, mm -hmm. particularly around people who were different, whether that was members in our congregation who were shamed as a result of their queerness, but I knew them to be as their humanity, um, to be as precious as my own. Um, so... Poetry allows me maybe not to kind of throw up barriers, but to kind of create a, a system of thinking, believing, cherishing the world around me. And also this, I don't want the answers because I love my states of awe and wonder. I like discovering new people, new places, art, music. There's something gorgeously dignifying about being open um, and not being kind of settled into one, me and my wife argues about this, one cuisine. <laughs> I want my tie, darn it. <laughs> no, I was suggesting that that vigilance, um, that fear, I think is what you mm. said, of being seen to be inauthentic or self-perception to be inauthentic. Mm -hmm maybe stops you from places that you might experiment with. or mm. I'm just wondering if there's any kind oh, I of... See. It goes in that direction, like, too. Yeah, like a creative... Sure. Totally. Um, yes. And in fact, I would say it shows up even more so increasingly in my poetry. I, you know, the inauthentic to me is for, let's just go to in poetry what that might look like, a cliché. <laughs> or a familiar image or symbol, right? And so when I teach, particularly my my students, if there is an abundance of over-familiarity, let's say the moon, right? <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> Which, by the way, is one of the great um, uh, unwritten, but it's there, assignments of poets. Poets are measured by how well they can bring the moon what? back. Is that right? It's very true. It's very, I can find so many references. One of my favorites is Derek Walcott, who compares the moon to a coin that was tossed and it stayed there. <laughs> I love that. That's cool, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like very imagistic. Yeah. So, but you know, most of my students are Derek Walcott. Yeah. So right. I got to like make sure that they're not, you know, in the realm of cliche. 
And it's and and then phrasing in imagery and emotion and feeling. I think um, a cliched existence is part of why we have some of the conflicts that we have mm, today, mm-hmm. and why we look on people uh, with these old ideas and not allow ourselves to kind of, for our humanity, to kind of grow. Because we're kind of stuck in these in, in language. That's going back there. I have so many more questions about that, but I'm going to move sure. on. Um, so I, I was telling you in our conversation before we came out that I've just finished reading Sophia Sinclair's incredible memoir, How to Say Babylon. I'm about to do an interview mm. with her. It, it is exceptional. Please put it on your top of your to-be-read list. Um And she is a poet and now memoirist, and she has this description in the memoir about what writing poetry is to her. Hmm. I'd love to hear you um, reflect on this and then add to it for yourself. She says, writing a poem is often like having the wind of some great power (laughs) rush through you. I always find myself empowered, a mortal on the other side with verses of immortality. Hmm. So consider that that's, a moment. That's beautiful. Well, I think recently I was talking about um, to be in the throes of making, whether it's a poem or a painting, a composition, um, you're in a way stopping time mm. um, because you're so immersed the world is going on at its breakneck speeds and you are so focused on this object. And I was recently talking about how words are to handle words and their energy and their power and their years of usage in our culture, you're inevitably going to fall into cliche. And so part of that power that kind of enters into you that I feel that Sophia is pointing to is a a certain kind of wind that takes those words up almost like leaves Mm -hmm. and rustles them, reanimates them in in your body and in yourself and hopefully land on something that is going to move you, but more importantly, move and surprise uh, the reader. That comes from um, uh, romantic English poets Mm -hmm. who talked about uh, the great wind that comes into, the spirit that comes into, which is why some poets claim not to, you know, they they give it another figure. He's like, you know, I don't remember writing that. Or it's a... It's a process that, ironically enough, many people share who write poetry. Um, there is a deliberateness. We make choices. We make aesthetic decisions about line breaks and images, and we make decisions about stanzas. But it really is an inspired kind of space you cross into the best of us. I have a writing group who meets on Mondays from CST time, it would be 12. Uh, They're out in the West Coast, East Coast. 
and we give ourselves 45 minutes. And you have to, this was a, a pandemic group that still meets, and you have to generate that energy so fast. You have to enter into it. And the, the gift of that moment for me is that I kind of, <laughs> I, I have to move in my office. I have to walk. Oh, the other thing is we give each other words. We create a word bank. And I'm just saying these words to myself walking. Uh, sometimes I will scribble. I'll do cluster clustering words around it. And then once it hooks, I got 15 minutes left because I just like did all that kind of prep work. I got 15 minutes to write a poem. And I realize it's not so much the composition as much as entering into that space of creating. And that's part of what I hear um, hear Sophia Sophia saying. Yeah. Uh, Did you use the word at one point, violent, for the process of... It sounded like a very physical experience. I did say that because at often Q&A question and answer sessions, someone will ask, what's your process in writing a poem? And I want to tell them the truth, but I say, and they want to hear something like, oh, I like candles. (laughs) I put on some jazz. I make a peppermint tea. But what I want to tell them is that it's not pretty sometimes. Like the spaces you go into can be really disorienting and really you're you're often tapping your subconscious. Mm-hmm. And we all know what's down there. Right? But and we'd like to hear what's down there. For me personally. Yeah. I guess my subconscious, I'm you know, for you know, Freud says fears and, and desires and uh, that are informed by, of course, our experiences. And so for me, that was like Sophia, um, a home with domestic violence, you know, um, a childhood of of drug abuse, um, a childhood of violence in the streets, um, you know, and that's also, I feel like that question and maybe even poetry itself, and maybe even how I present myself, kind of disguises the 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 very very real lived experiences that informed me coming to poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, Auden in a in a poem on uh, W. B. Yeats says, "Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry." Mm-hmm. Many of us were hurt into poetry, and. The poems that we write as contending with that with those scars with with that the, that past suffering and so um, to to ask a question about creative process prettifies something that is really serious and very um, emotionally wrenching sometimes so you reach down into that subconscious. And you wrestle with whether whether there is some kind of disguise to make it mm-hmm. to make it uh, what meaningful for you, or you're reaching into the most fearful thing that you've hesitated to face, or 
What is that interrogation like? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a memory that you didn't Mm -hmm. know was there. Um, And often us poets, it came from Donald Hall, who talked about the necessity of saying the unsayable. Mm -hmm. And I think courage is behind that, a cultivated courage to arrive to say some of those things. Um, the, the surprise can sometimes take your breath away, can make you put the pen down or you get up from your computer. Um, but I think a daily, you know, not for daily for me, but almost daily or weekly practice of writing and realizing you're also constructing language. Like you don't have to be a mere reporter or yeah. journalist. There's a art making to it too. And that's in my mind, whether I'm talking about my mother's um, very real or, you know, she's not alive now, but writing about her addiction um, or mental illness in the family, um, it's, it still has to process through the engine of art. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's a different kind of text. It's it's something else that's not going to, in my mind, maybe reach the reader as an aesthetic experience, but something else. Maybe time for another poem. Sure. Would that be all right? Sure. Will you tell us a little bit about what you've selected? Yes. Um, uh, this is the second poem. Actually, I'm going I'm to go to How to Listen because just to kind of come back to listening, um, Seamus Heaney has a poem called Digging where he compares the pen to a shovel. And one um, one realizes, again, uh, you don't know what you're going to pull up. But I advocate in my poems... Um, the necessity of listening and listening not only to yourself, but to others. So I wrote this a while ago. It's in my first book, um, Leaving Saturn. And uh, this was published in the New Yorker uh, years ago. And New Yorker, the New Yorker's magazine is known for its fact checkers. And this fact checker said this particular bar that I referenced wasn't on the street <laughs> that um, I alluded to. Uh, and uh, would I like to keep it there <laughs> or move it around the corner? And I said, poetic license, let's keep it there. How to listen. I am going to cock my head tonight like a dog in front of McGlinty's tavern on Locust. I'm going to stand beside the man who works all day combing his thatch of gray hair, corkscrewed in every direction. I'm going to pay attention to our lives, unraveling between the forks of his fine tooth comb. For once, we won't talk about the end of the world or Vietnam or his exquisite paper shoes. For once, I am going to ignore the profanity and the dancing and the jukebox so I can hear his head crackle beneath the sky's stretch of faint stars. 
So um, Philadelphia, like many cities, got rid of uh, state mental hospitals mm-hmm. in the 80s. And many of the folks didn't have families that they could go home to. So we had a serious population of of people with mental illness uh, on the streets. And this one particular person, um, almost like he was going to a job, just stood on the corner and uh, pretended. He didn't even have a comb, but he pretended like he was combing his hair. It was just so heartbreaking. And then I saw he had, when, when it got cold, he had on a army jacket with his name on it. And I kind of timed his age. I knew he had served in uh, Vietnam. Um, And I just stood there one day. I didn't talk to him, but I listened to him. And I don't remember much of what he said, so some of it is imagined. Uh, But I just thought the least, it's imperative upon us, the least wise among us, to kind of listen to them, which is why I do events... um, or I used to do events at homeless shelters. I just did uh, an event at a women's center in uh, Massachusetts. Great, amazing, beautiful souls there. And it's important for me that they are reflected in, in our literature. You're listening to a conversation with poet, professor, and scholar Major Jackson. He's the host of the podcast, The Slowdown, produced by APMG and his new collection of poetry is titled Razzle Dazzle. You know, I thought Seamus Heaney might come up. So <laughs> um, I wanted to talk about his poem, Wheels Within Wheels. Yes. And I thought, I thought I would read, for listeners who aren't familiar with the poem, the last stanza, which yes. is mind-blowing. Yes, it is. So, so um, it's dizzyingly wonderful. Nothing rose to the occasion after that until in a circus ring, drum rolled and spotlit, cowgirls wheeled in, each one immaculate at the still center of a lariat, perpetuum mobile, sheer pirouette, tumblers, jonglers, ring a rosies, stet. Stet, yeah. <laughs> <At the very laughs> end. That poem begins with which we've all done if you've had a broken uh, or chain come off your bike. It begins with um, him flipping the bike over and getting the chain on, but turning uh, the handle. And he starts seeing wheels within wheels. And he talks about Sometimes when you do that with a bike, it's almost like the foot pedal pulls you. And I just love that, how that, again, you know, there's a poem that begins with an image in which we can enter in through the experience and then be taken to that circus that the, 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 um, uh, what are they called? Uh, the woman doing the lariats. Yeah, the cowgirls. Yeah, the cowgirls. Yeah. It's just, Beautiful, you know, um, how the mind can roam from one image associatively into another image that sheds light on a part of our existence. And for me, that's the other pleasure of writing poetry is that discovery of 
how we're how how the world is linked. One of my great images that I inherit, I can't remember who I stole this from, but poetry as a as a flashlight in the dark that hits a web and you see that web yeah. for a moment and then or let's say it's lightning and you see that web and and writing poetry can have that effect of illuminating and leaping and keeping you on that on that journey until you land on one of those um what I mentioned earlier actually I stole this from Louise Glick too uh enduring discoveries those truths you know what I love about that is what you said earlier which is the there is an illusion to the reader you probably have lived a very different life than Seamus Heaney live. <laughs> and yet it sounds like that poem reached out and rang a bell inside you and there was recognition yeah. there. I I don't I want that power. I want I wept reading a William Wordsworth poem. I wept because Somehow he had reached across nearly 150 years uh, to, at that time I was in Oregon, uh, to somehow utter something that felt relevant to me at that particular time and day. Um, you're right, Seamus, uh, uh, of Ireland, definitely born at Earth. In the 1930s, I believe, 1920s, 1930s, definitely we lived a different experience. But so much of his poetry early on was um, uh, inspiring because I did see a life. And what an essay that needs to be written about is how he mentored a number of African-American poets, Hmm. including Tracy K. Smith. Wow. And um, Kevin Young and others who studied with him. Yeah, tell us a little bit about your experience with Gwendolyn Brooks. Oh, yes, Gwendolyn Brooks, um, early hero, whose aesthetic of writing about her neighborhood. Um, and one of my friends said, you know, you can pick up a Gwendolyn Brooks volume, and it, you pretty much are reading about a four block radius around Bronzeville where she where she lived um, that was inspiring to me early on as a project of wanting to write about North Philadelphia and Germantown um, in my home home city which is to say you can write about the people you can be very particular about which streets um, you can in a way divine, the everyday or divine the people in your life. You don't have to write poetry with capital P subject matters, yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> the moon. Time, the moon, right, exactly. Right. Uh, so I did get to meet her after hosting her in Philadelphia for a reading. And she was she had just won the Jefferson Lecture Award, which is the highest art award you, that uh, Congress gives artists. And she famously did not like to fly. She took the train in that kind of old-fashioned, like, get on a train that was comfortable and uh, and see the land. And so she came to Philadelphia from D.C., and she's on her way up to New York. And she asked me to, and some friends to drive her 
and I had this, I knew she was precious cargo. So I went under the speed limit. I did not want to go down in history as the person who had an accident with Gwendolyn Brooks. And uh, we arrived to the Park Hotel on Central Park. And, you know, the doormen wear all their regalia, their coats. And this gentleman came up, opened a door. I don't know how he knew my car, but he saw Gwendolyn Brooks and he opened the door and said, welcome back, Miss Brooks. And he knew her from all the years that she came to New York since the 1950s. This was early, uh, this would have been about, I want to say about uh, mid-90s. And she um, she said, well, escort me up to my room. So I went up to her room and she said, you're not leaving, are you? <laughs> I said, well, we're going back an hour and a half. She said, oh, just hang out a bit. I want you to write a, read a poem t- at tonight before I give my reading. And we were with two friends. None of us had any poems. So I went around a corner to a cafe and wrote some haikus. Wow. And if you remember Gwendolyn Brooks, her readings were short. Her signing books was as long, doubly as long as her reading. And so <laughs> she made sure that we did not leave. So we had to stand around while she talked, which was fine. I saw some of my heroes. Um, I met for the first time my dear friend Marie Howell. Then I reminded her that we met there. And... um and then she wrote us out a check after she signed everyone's book. And that was how I paid my rent that month. <laughs> it was a big check. It was pretty wild. It was very encouraging. I hadn't published a poem. I hadn't done anything other than write a few poems at that time. I mean, you ran around the corner and wrote haikus <laughs> for Gwendolyn yes, Brooks. Yes, yeah. Uh, that's either yeah. crazy or yeah. what? Well, Bold she was, or desperate? What, what do you think? It set me on the path. That generosity. Wow. That generosity. And she was almost as uh, equally uh, revered for how she modeled to be a commu- to be a, a artist and an artist in community. Mm. Um, she did that for so many people. Yeah. One last poem, and then we will sure. open it up to some questions, sure. if you will. This is um, called Making Things, and it's the second poem in the book. And it's I'm reading it because the title is in the poem, uh, Razzle Dazzle. And uh, there are times in which I very self-consciously want to high-five the people behind me, both teachers, mentors, but definitely family members who, I've know, who I know made sacrifices for me to be where I am today. Um, but it's also a poem um, about very simply writing poetry. So if someone asks me, what is my creative process, Here's what I'm I'm going to read to them. Making things. Suddenly, I had to skewer all my prayers and slow roast them in the open air kitchen of my imagination. 
I had to shovel fire into my laughter and keep my eyes from blinking. I had to fuss like a cook simmering storms. I had to move like a ballet dancer, but without the vanity and self-consciousness of tradition. I had to blur my scars so I could write into time and carry the sensation of walking like a morose and heavy American sporting a yellow ascot over Pont Saint-Michel. I want to be all razzle-dazzle before the dark-cloaked one arrives for a last game of chess. My font of feelings is a waterfall, and I live as if no toupees exist on earth, or masks that silence the oppressed, or anything that does not applaud the sycamore's tribute to the red flame, like the heat beneath my grandmother's heart, who never raised a ghost but a storm. So look at me standing on the porch, laughing at the creek, threatening to become a raging river. That's great. Has your, has your reading style changed? Has it changed? Yeah. Since I mean, the podcast? Very much so. Has it? How so? <laughs> well, my wife said, go slower. She said Is that. She? Yeah, because she feels as though, you know, she's, the writing's good. But if you go too fast, people can't digest right. um, the quick imagery that you bring into the poem. So it has changed over the years, um, even before the podcast, to be honest, yeah. I mean, it's good to have some silence. Yes. In the middle. Are we afraid of that, yes. do you think? I Here's what I, I, speaking about the podcast and some of it's, what it's teaching me and impact and uh, poetry. I think when we read poetry on the page, we have the great distinct experience of hearing, almost hearing someone else's thoughts. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes what we hear is familiar and sometimes it's unknown. It's not, and we can live with that. As you know, I'm an advocate of living in doubt and uncertainty. But when someone reads it out loud, there's almost this, the, the intimacy that we experience of hearing someone's thoughts, that what I'm trying to do with the podcast and in my own readings of my own poems is preserve that intimacy, preserve that, that preciousness, that um, what feels like a civil um, exchange. Mm-hmm. My wife has her own separate books because she likes to be in conversation. She writes on the page. And for me, books are precious. Um, I, there's a sacredness to reading for me. Um, and that's fine. That's her style. That's how she engages. But with the podcast and reading the poems out loud, and even the kind of prefatory remarks, I really want to get this the listener in a state of reception. And that's why the pacing, that's why the rhythm, that's why the care, um, 
which in writing poems, I can't say that I'm I'm necessarily thinking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that ideal reader, but uh, maybe in the revising, I'm absolutely thinking about them. You said something in the podcast about how you didn't, sometimes you will hear a poem and you'll realize at the end of it, that you needed it that day. Mm. I love that idea. Mm. It's um, It puts me in the role of matchmaker. Yeah. You know, like each point, I don't know who on the other end needs to hear those words. When we talk to uh, listeners of The Slowdown or people who love poetry, um, many of them have been either provoked, saved, heard, seen. We hear this in the feedback, uh, in the comments, um, people who donate. Uh, it's, it's a great, immense power that art brings, and particularly the spoken and written word. Okay, some questions from the audience. Hello. So um, I, I heard you speak at the opening of the Twin Cities Book Festival on Friday night, and you um, read some of your poems that were very funny, and my husband and I were in stitches. And so I really wanted, which was great, because he's not a one that listens much to poetry, so he was delighted <laughs> and and had a fun time. So I wanted to ask you what the role of humor is yes, and in reaching out to your listeners. Um. I do not consider myself funny. And I have even written about this as part of the podcast. Like when I was younger, um, I had family members that had to work me out of my kind of brooding, you know, um, intellectual self, you know. And fortunately, you know, you arrive at a point where you can't do anything else but laugh. And so laughter becomes the on-ramp to, and I see this quite a bit with my friend's poem, Billy Collins. It's like, it's a way of angling towards something that maybe if you think a little too long or hard about it, it might make you sad. But for me, I love irony, turns out. I love, um, and irony is, of course, a type of humor. Um, Poetry has to have the full range of strategies to kind of communicate and be in conversation uh, with the world. I even um, flirted for a moment. Um, I saw a friend of mine who's a poet do this, uh, do stand-up beforehand. It's like, hey, I have a joke, you know, and... The joke fell flat. I was like, okay, I'm not doing that. But I understood the gesture because she was about to read some very serious uh, poems about our lack of connection to each other. And she needed the laughter. For me personally, I look for those moments um, increasingly. So I think one of the poems I read that night was Ode to Everything. And it's it's born out of the fact that poets almost define themselves as much uh, of writing poems of praise as they do love poems. Like you meet a poet, you go, oh, I bet you have 12 sonnets in your back pocket, you know. 
Um, but they also are writing praise poems. And I just couldn't find anything, one thing to praise. So I just wrote a poem called Ode to Everything. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think humor is a great way of also, for those who are skeptics of poetry and believe that poetry is solipsistic or a little, a little too self-absorbed or serious, humor brings us all in as a community. And I loved hearing laughter, it turns out. Thank you so much. As I've listened to your podcast, kind of as a reminder in preparation to see you today, I feel that they're, regardless of the words, so meditative, hmm. such a like daily checkout. And I'm wondering if that's your intention or that winds up just being the effect. Yeah. Shout out to um, Beth Perlman and Micah. Um, they're just great, part of the great team. And occasionally, and this is new for me, this platform is very new, so I'm really honored by that Signal Award. Um, I I think it was maybe I'd chosen a poem, and Micah said, Major, we, we have data that shows people are listening to this when they first wake up. <laughs> or when they're winding down their day. And so, believe it or not, the timing really does shape uh, the, sometimes the selection of the poem as well as as my remarks beforehand, um, which doesn't mean we stay away from difficult topics because I, I believe if there's any place um, uh, for poetry, for us to kind of address these subjects, it's in poetry. Um, but, and I also have this thing where safe subjects have a limited reach uh, as well. But it's, it's intentional, but I also think it's in the mode of, of poetry that people are going to hear. If I'm, if I'm loud and rambunctious, that's the type of kind of persona that we encounter in podcasts. It may go over, you know. I think what I love about about the podcast is that there's a great lineage of hosts. Tracy K. Smith had her own particular set of topics that was important to her, and she had a way of delivery that felt um, uh, particular to what I know as a very thoughtful, concerned citizen of the world and artist, an extraordinary artist. Ada is very, very funny on the page and in real life. She's a dear friend for many years. Um, and I, if, if you encounter me at a dinner party, classroom, um, on the street, maybe uh, shopping at Publix, uh, <laughs> this is me. The person you encounter on the um, podcast is not a constructed self yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Right over there. Thank you. There's so much you've said today that I'm just absorbing. Thank you. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit about the classroom. You talked about hurt to poetry, and um, I just I wonder how you teach your students to 
find that hurt or how you reach them so they can um, express themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Well, we can say my friends over in engineering doesn't have to encounter uh, the very real, beautiful, stark humanity of young people in the way that I have to. And so there's emotional labor that we're all doing in the classroom. Um, and we are also very serious about our artistry. And so it's two-pronged. It, it is allowing them to kind of access their humanity to write about the important moments in their lives, the book, the challenging as well as the joyous as in as authentic language as they can, but also to write a poem by which the tradition of poetry that is um, uh, uh, an inherited tradition in which the bar has been set up here. So it's two-pronged. My exercises tend towards empowering them to go towards craft, but also to kind of plunge, to do that, that plunge into their self, which, like I said, can be very, very scary. Um, the, one of the poems that I asked them to write is the self-portrait poem. And that means, in a way... They have to kind of, in language, look in the mirror and write honestly, to write language that's not going to obscure. I give them an out by telling them to find an object if they could compare themselves to something. Mine is a supermarket. That was one of the poems that I read. It's called The Supermarket in Me. I'm a supermarket. And 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 finding the object allows them to create this extended conceit in which they can write about, let's say, um, being a door, right, which is a beautiful concept. Um, and maybe say, hey, you know, I'm someone who likes to support people. I'm someone who likes to uh, uh, for people to come into and discover um, my world, but also see themselves in it. So there's exercises that allow me to do that. There's also, I truly believe in reading other poems as models. Um, and I'm doing something different these days, and it's really spawned by my relationship to art and music, and that, is, and that is to find a genre of music that they would never listen to. I got some hip-hop students who are just starting to listen to country music for the first time mm -hmm. and saying, wow, they, they, <laughs> there's a lot of heartbreak in these lyrics. They're like, yeah, I know. It's great, isn't it? They're getting close to the bone. Um, I've always had students look at visual works of art, but now I'm having them listen to music, and that's been exciting. One or two more questions. Your comment about self-portrait and with the students and so on, I'm wondering, do you and your poetry, and I, I want to 
expose myself to more of it, uh, address the collective losses, not the mm. personal stories. Uh, so much of poetry can be uh, written from the singular voice of the the poet, the writer. Yeah. But lots of people are dealing with collective trauma. That's right. Would you address how you come to that? Yeah. So as you can imagine, a great deal of what I'm writing about tends towards um, the history of and treatment of African Americans in this country. And so that's been my primary kind of concern. But um, I'm equally concerned about how the homeless are treated here. Um, I have the great fortune of having traveled quite a bit um, as a result of my work and understand some of the challenges that people face in other countries um, and have written about that, but in a way that um, I'm very self-conscious of not planting myself as a spokesperson for a group of people as well. So I think we are thinking very intentionally about these delicate balances of selfhood and shared humanity and struggle. I read a poem yesterday called Ferguson, and I didn't prep it. All you have to say is Ferguson. And and yet, I could have written about the absurdity of a body being left in a street for however many hours it took for them to move it, but I decided to cast it as a fable. And in my mind, the imagination is maybe more powerful sometimes, not all the times, than the direct report or the witnessing or the journalistic report. Because there's a level of objectivity in those forms. Whereas with the imagination, we can angle at it, as Miss Dickinson told us, from another uh, space in which we can turn it and say, okay, yeah, someone should have intervened at higher levels and not subjected a whole community to a body in the street. How, whatever the rationale, but that's also part, uh, in fact, a very significant portion of themes in this book has to do with social justice issues. Yeah. And art. Thank you all for being here and for the excellent questions. Major, thank you. What a pleasure. Thank you.